0: Welcome to Synecdox Talk, the podcast channel of Synectics for Management Decisions, Incorporated.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of Synecdox Talk. My name is Ovid Diaz, and today we will be discussing the five pillars of artificial intelligence in government. And to do that, we have a panel with four guests to discuss this interesting topic. And I would like to start with Mr. Sam Morissetti, who leads the data analytics and innovation practices at Synectics. He is passionate about using data and analytics to make informed decisions and has over 15 years of experience delivering data analytical solutions to clients. He leads also the innovation lab for Synectics, where research and new innovative ideas and emerging technologies happen in the startup model. Sam, Thank you very much for being part of this panel today
0: Thank you Alcoda
1: Our next guest is a well-known data professional who has become a leading voice about AI revolution in the industry and in government she has held almost every position in the technology field throughout her career and today she stands out as a CTO. She designs and delivers solutions for customers, and she's also a member of a Forbes Technology Council, ambassador for the nonprofit organization Women in AI, and founder of a DC Emerging Technology Group. And I'm talking about Ms. Swati Jung. Swati, thank you very much for being part of this panel today.
2: Oh, big, thank you for having me.
1: Our next guest is the Synectics Chief Operational Officer. He is an international operational law attorney by training and has a strong background spanning law, military operations, airspace, economics, ethics, contracts, and program management in both the domestic and international context. I'm talking about Mr. Jeff Spears. Jeff, thank you for being here with us today.
3: Thank you very much, uh, Obed. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Our last member of the panel today is a West Point Academy graduated engineer and former colonel of the U.S. Army. He has over 15 years of experience in government business development, and he leads the Business Development Department for Synectics for Management Decisions. I'm talking about Mr. Bob Strom. Bob, thank you very much for being here today.
4: Glad to be here, Ovid.
1: Today, we will be discussing the five pillars of AI in government. But I want to start defining a little bit the concept of AI. So there is a common search query on Google that goes as follows. Are artificial intelligence and machine learning the same thing? So if you were Google search, how could you respond to this query? Swati and Sam, if you had the opportunity to be in for one day Google search, How could you respond to this, Carrie?
2: First of all, I would go back and borrow from the 1956 definition of artificial intelligence, which actually compares machine intelligence to human intelligence. And what I would like to say is that very often people get confused with the terms artificial intelligence and machine learning and Also, the confusion is around, when should I apply AI? When should I apply machine learning? And are these two terms synonymous? So just to demystify that a little bit, artificial intelligence is a branch of computer science. And obviously, we are looking at developing some sort of intelligence in machines Um, that think and work like humans, but not exactly like humans. Um, And artificial intelligence, I wanted to say, is a broad term, and it has many subfields under it. And one of the subfields is machine learning. And currently, the artificial intelligence use cases in businesses, both consumer, government, nonprofits, et cetera, is 60% use cases of machine learning. And then you have other things like speech recognition, natural language processing, as well as robotics, which are the different uh, subfields under artificial intelligence. And so when we talk about machine learning, it basically means you write algorithms, unlike traditional software, the algorithms learn from vast quantities of data to produce outcomes uh, to solve a problem. So in a nutshell, AI is a very broad field under computer science and under it, one of the subfields is machine learning, which typically is algorithms used to predict an outcome.
0: Artificial intelligence or AI simply means uh, we are mimicking human intelligence and as the broad term says, artificial intelligence, the subset is machine learning and the subset of machine learning is deep learning. So Machine learning is, provides the ability where the machines are able to learn and improve from their experience. They are learning with the data that is fed into them and they can make their own decisions. And deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning, uses neural networks more as a structure of human brain. And today, AI is used in all walks of life. From a simple example of email filter, there is AI in filtering, finding if it is a spam email or a junk email or a valid email. It is used in chatbots, voice recognition systems. All organizations are implementing AI machine learning to improve their process and government now has started extensively using AI, and we all going to benefit from the use of AI.
1: When talking about AI in government, one of the first questions that comes to my mind is, is government ready for using AI? Bob, how do you explain this?
4: Well, that, that depends really on what you call AI, but in general, I would say yes. And the reason for the yes is the government's been using AI for a long time. If you go all the way back to the uh, the late 1990s, for instance, uh, they used machine methods uh, in the post office to recognize handwriting on envelopes in order to automatically route letters. So AI has been used there, but more importantly, the government is just swimming in data, and they don't really have an effective way of using everything that they have just with people looking at it and trying to make sense of it. So in terms of the large data sets that the government has, the only way to really make effective use of that is with AI, and they're ready for that. They're, they're eager for that, actually. Beyond that, there's a real benefit to AI and government because it'll free up employees and contractors from the repetitive tasks that they have to do on a day-to-day basis and uh, make them available for meaningful tasks and for tasks that really AI isn't suited to do, such as lateral thinking, tasks that require you to make choices based on empathy and be creative. AI doesn't do that type of analysis and and work very well, uh, at least not yet. And so that would be, uh, you know, we're ready for that in in the government, I'm sure. Uh, There's a a shortage really in expert data analysts today. So everything from from basic questions to uh, predictability to learning from historical data, all of that is really ready to go for AI and government today. Uh, AI can do work with diverse data that people just can't, putting together visual and linguistic analyses into one common data set or some kind of studies, even to the point of, uh, you know, when I go overseas, I use uh, a Google Translator. That's an AI tool, and it allows me to speak in a foreign language. Similarly, if we have data sets that are in a variety of different uh, languages, both machine languages as well as natural use languages, AI tools will open up all of that or analysis within the government. And so, yes, the government is really ready for that in terms of both analysis, business processes, and then just the technical operation of government from day to day.
1: Thank you, Bob. Now that we clear what AI is, let's start with the first pillar, which is data. And smart systems or AI systems are fed by data. They get the data and they analyze it in some cases, The system check decisions, right? But where data comes from and how machines collect data. Sam, could you please explain us how machines collect this data and where the data comes from?
0: Data has become a critical part in everyday life now. People, companies have tremendously increased the use and sharing of data over the years. And from search engines, voice recognition systems, texting, social media, chatbots and all the machines that generate a lot of logs of data and all documents, whether it is medical uh, records, healthcare, various applications and systems are generating a lot of data. And these data is collected and analyzed and with use coming up of AI, we can improve our way of life by analyzing and interpreting this data.
1: Bob. How government use data?
4: The government uses data in a a whole variety of ways, but their real focus, I believe, is on improving services to the people of our country. Uh, And depending on what part of the government is, uh, you're even providing services through USAID and others, uh, State Department, to foreigners as well. And all of that uh, is predicated also on staying within budget, saving taxpayers money, and uh, creating better public policies. And so all of those pieces kind of go together to produce things that we can't do without an AI tool. So for instance, a really broad range of government needs uh, that can be met. would be, uh, you know, we would start maybe with uh, receiving benefits. Every citizen today can receive benefits almost immediately in an automated fashion just by signing up because an AI tool is checking out all of their data, uh, all of the information that they put in. The government uses AI tools right now for classifying emergency calls uh, based on urgency and being able to respond in a triage manner. We certainly are are seeing around COVID the detection and prevention of the spread of diseases and predicting the spread of diseases. And that's all based on AI tools that are are combing through huge data sets all across the country. I think that AI is going to be used more and more for detecting fraud. It's already being used in fraud and benefit claims, but all kinds of other fraud activities as well. So broad range, but uh, within that range, there's really almost no limit. We could have environmental protection and energy exploration put in there, for instance. But companies uh, like ours that want to provide these kinds of services, we have to really understand what the customers need and then choose the best tools uh, that are available for meeting those needs in an economical and efficient manner.
1: So what is implied here is not all types of data are created equal. So Swati and Sam... Why data types matter when we're talking about AI systems?
2: So essentially what everybody who are not in the world of technology know as information has become digital. From the moment you wake up, you might be wearing a Fitbit that records your sleep patterns. And then as soon as you start walking, it records your steps. That is a data because it's in the digital format. Your Fitbit is typically connected to an app or your um, computer where you can see the progress and historical patterns. From there on, think about the first thing in the morning you're logging into your phone and you're liking something on social media. That's another data point. And then maybe you're using Nest and Ring in your house that's actually gathering information. Uh, if it is a ring that's gathering video information at the front porch, if you have installed it there. And if you have Nest, it's, uh, it has information about the temperature in your house that you're controlled over a period of time. And then you drive um, to your grocery store, you use ways that gives you directions to get there. And then in the grocery store, you make a purchase and that is a sales trans- transaction. So all these, and this I've only covered like one hour in everybody's life, and all these are data points. And when you think of data and these data points, there are so many different types of data. To your question about data types, um, the way the information is connect, collected in my Fitbit is very different from how Ring is collected. So the Ring actually collects video images And then the nest is collecting actual temperature. So there are different types of data. Um, The likes you're doing on your Facebook or your Twitter. um, And all the social media photographs that you post comes under unstructured data. Um, The videos, audio, all those things are unstructured data, but there's also semi structured and quasi structured data. So Semi-structured is something like an XML that people in the world of technology often recognize and an Excel spreadsheet. An Excel spreadsheet holds data, except that it's not necessarily a database. So, and then you come to st- structured data, which is data stored in database. So if you have gone to the grocery store, made a purchase, that purchase transaction, is actually recorded as a sales transaction by your point of sale systems in the grocery store, which typically uses a database to store that information. That is an example of structured data. So when you're asking a machine learning algorithm or trying to write an algorithm to solve a problem, it's very important to know what your data type is. So if the grocery store wants to find out what is the sales of my flakes this month it can directly go to its sales transactions and look for uh, what is the dollar amount that people spent on conflicts pretty straightforward whereas if the grocery store wants to know how many thefts have happened or been reported to the police in the area uh, then they have to take that video footage and if they're investigating that theft, then it's very different. The video footage is very unstructured and you, and you're trying to find out who has stolen some goods from your store. They are going to take a long time because unstructured data is very expensive to convert into a structured format, as well as it takes a long time to actually extract any meaningful insights from it. So in this simple example, we came to know the data types matter. The sales transaction was pretty straightforward structured data and database, which takes lesser time to get an insight compared to the video footage where they were trying to find out how many goods have been stolen from their store um, and at what points of time. So that's why it's very important to find out what types of data do you have to solve a problem or the other way around, businesses often start with a problem to solve, and then they think about what is the data to solve the problem. And the data types is important because the investment time taken and resources that's required to solve a problem with unstructured data typically is much more than one with structured data. Hence, it's very important to understand the data types in the context of machine learning.
1: There is a buzzword. Uh, lately around internet that is called biased data. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how data could be biased and what is this concept of biased data and how it impacts the results on AI systems. Swati and Sam, what are your thoughts about this?
2: It's interesting you asked this question because two weeks back, uh, one of the major efforts that I had been involved and was leading was the ethical AI framework for the US government that got published. And one of the sections that I was leading was bias. And it's interesting that we as humans have around 180 cognitive biases, according to Wikipedia. And historically, bias has always existed um, in our society in humans. So and when you talk about bias you do have this negative connotation to bias but there are uh, positive biases as well uh, so bias in the context of ethical evaluation of ai is bias is something that influences the decision that's the first thing the second thing is since machine learning is 60 percent of ai use cases and machine learning learns from vast quantities of data Data inherently is information produced by humans. So our human biases are going to seep into the data. And sometimes the business processes that we have will also have some biases. So let me take an example. Um, The first example I want to address is a recruitment system. So if you want to build a recruitment system that does some automatic recommendation using machine learning, you will have biased data if you just collect the data from your large organization because historically women have had less promotions historically less women leaders exist in an organization historically less women applicants are there for a position so if you go by traditional machine learning you're going to take the historical data feed it to a machine make it read and make it recommend candidates so if the number of women data points are lesser than men, the the machine learning algorithm will automatically get biased, not because it has evil intentions, but because the data that was fed to it based on history uh, is already biased. So, and there are ways to tackle this bias, both in technical ways to balance this data set uh, that typical data scientists do, But there are also ways that are beyond the engineering team. We want to make sure our business processes, so in this case, you know on the onset that historically we have lesser data points for women. So the question to be discussed among the stakeholder committee is what are we going to do about it? Um, So that's one. The second thing is a very common example, the credit card or a business loan. Uh, where also your data points might be different for based on historical data. Um, And secondly, I want to emphasize sometimes that uh, the bias can be by second degree. And allow me to explain, by second degree means sometimes zip code, right? So if you collect the data for a healthcare provider from a city, and you do not collect certain data points from a zip code, that zip code can be on, in an area where underrepresented communities live. So, by second degree, and by not collecting that data, you're going to create biased outcomes. So, we have to be very careful when you think about data bias. It's about are we collecting data that's inclusive data set? And if it's not possible, sometimes historically we don't have the data. The question is an engineering team has to think about how to balance the data set and whether the outcomes will be skewed or not. So um, it's it's I mean it's a huge problem. There's nothing called unbiased data. The question is how do we think about our business processes, our engineering solutions, and outcome evaluations in the context of biased data sets.
0: Thank you, Obed, and also Swati for excellent examples on bias, how that impacts uh, the results. Uh, System uh, Drift denotes uh, system changes how the user interacts with the system. For example, the common example is how all of us use Google, Bing, another search engine to search for results. And if that results search information is used for making decisions, how that search pattern would impact those results so that's where uh, the system drift bias would come into picture Uh, what sets of locations or areas the search was made and what kind of results would have come in those would cause the system uh, drift bias
2: another example that comes to mind is that uh, a small business uh, organization want to request for a business loan, um, and they might be uh, owned by a black community and uh, their business loan might have the business requirements where they look at many different factors. For those of you who have worked in the financial industry knows that the credit rules and the business loan rules are a lot they not only look at your credit history um, they look at the organization or the business performance in terms of financials they look at the business owners past records in terms of what sort of property do they own uh, do they have liens or judgments and so on so one one decision uh, factor in this business process could be should they include or omit somebody's incarceration records uh, or any uh, any violation records from 15 years ago so when an as a teenager if i had a judgment against me and was caught like uh, i don't know uh, shoplifting and had the record um, that is now i'm 45 and or 50 years old uh, the business rule is should we include that or not so Sometimes by including or by omission, you will create some bias. And, uh, and it's like, I always go back to the statement, ethical and bias evaluation in AI is not just an engineering problem. We are, the engineering team is the last step in the process where we can use technical ways of how to deal with it. But business process is the first step to think about Uh, when you think about biased data or biased information because your business rules will determine whether you're omitting certain data points or including certain data points.
0: It is a challenge to identify and correct the bias. Organizations as they're implementing AI are learning the problems, the pitfalls with the bias. So what in this perspective of government, what the government can do is one established standards and guidance for these things so that all organizations can follow those standards so that there is no there is a reduced bias and as we all know, a government has embarked on the open data strategy where all federal agencies share data and make it public. But if that data is not in a right format or is it biased, then the results from that will be biased too. So, what government can do, they can devote public resources for the creation and curation of these accurate and bias free data sets. Uh, it cannot happen overnight, but with the public resources and government invo- active involvement, these public data sets can be created that are accurate and uh, less bias free. And this is an ongoing process. Uh, With uh, transparency and public awareness, uh, government can work towards bringing those uh, data sets that are accurate and uh,
3: One comment I would uh, make about uh, data sets and and some of the discussion surrounding uh, omitted variable bias is that it highlights an important aspect of how this data is used when it's being processed Uh, by artificial intelligence or through machine learning applications is who is the end user. For instance, if the end user is the human resources department, uh, understanding how that data has been managed, particularly as what's been included and what's been admitted, is very important from a legal compliance perspective. For example, if the data uh, includes information, that is not allowed to be considered by federal law. For instance, the Fair Credit Reporting Act greatly limits what companies can consider in pre-employment screenings and also creates certain obligations uh, by companies to notify individuals if there was adverse information that impacted the employment decision. The use of this data could give rise to legal problems for the company if the human resources department didn't understand exactly what the sources of the data were and how it was being uh, used uh, in the context.
1: Swati, let's talk about data privacy and security, why it is important and why we need to have it in mind when working with AI systems.
2: I think since time immemorial, um, people have always been concerned about privacy with or without technology but technology has sort of uh, exasperated this issue to a large extent and privacy when we come uh, talk about privacy an interesting uh, fact i was reading in a paper recently is people not only have to read the terms and terms and conditions and check that box that they read the terms and conditions sometimes they overlooks and satisfying print. But even after checking the parks, they are not aware what they're consenting with the second degree uh, consequences. So when I check the terms and conditions of Twitter or Facebook, I only think I'm checking about my the way the data is uh, being shared or used by Facebook, I am not consenting to them mining the data and finding out what are my political likes and dislikes, what are my location based travels, or what, what sort of uh, sexual orientation I have. So, when it comes to data privacy, it's become a very, very complicated and hairy problem in this day and age when data is produced at record numbers. Obviously, there is a legal definition, I'm sure Jeff knows a lot more about that than I do. Uh, but Essentially, it's very, very important for organizations in these days uh, to ensure that the privacy of their employees, the privacy of the customers, uh, and if you're a government agency, the privacy of the citizens is is, uh, at most importance. Uh, But unfortunately, that seems to be far from the case. And most recently, you, you noticed all the large organizations like IBM and Microsoft actually made a statement that they're no longer going to pursue facial recognition technologies um, after the Black Lives moment um, because the the privacy in this case is is questionable. Uh, And as we are looking at more and more applications, people are not aware that the data privacy is being at stake sometimes right 2016 elections by second degree where facebook actually sold the data to another third party entity without people's knowledge and people were bombarded with psychometrics using the data changed the narrative and history in, in our election so data privacy is becoming increasingly important as the lines between physical and digital world worlds are blurry And another example I said earlier, you're using your ring video right in front of your porch. Now you might be videographing the person who's delivering your mail, the person who's giving your Amazon delivery orders, uh, maybe sometimes the neighbors. So you're not getting their explicit permission for doing that. And uh, we all know the stories that although we all use Amazon Alexa, how much of our uh, voice is being actually recorded and and for what purposes is being used. So so when it comes to data privacy, it's obviously very important whether it's AI or just any technology that um, you make sure one, you let your employees or your customers or your citizens aware that you're collecting that information and to what purpose um and secondly i think it's important for an organization to build that trust and long-term value with their customers and employees to make sure that they promise them that their data is going to be protected and uh, thirdly your reputation is at stake as an organization even as a government entity um so data privacy is very very important and we are not yet at a mature level. I think it's only going back to worse uh, because like I said, the lines are becoming blurry between digital and physical worlds and more and more innovation using new technologies like Ring or Amazon Alexa or voice recognition technologies are increasing and people are not stopping and thinking what is it they're giving away when they use a digital platform for free. Um, So, while the regulators will take time to, uh, to enforce law and regulation and policy around these issues. It's also important for common citizens to be cognizant about uh, what they're giving their information away and what sort of data points are they creating. For example, one thing I never do is post pictures of my four-year-old on social media because i read some stories about how that data is being harvested by advertisers Um, so we just have to be mindful and until the uh, regulations are in place so as a data scientist and since i'm a practicing data scientist one of the things we want to ensure is first of all all the pii and phi information follows the security guidelines obviously Um, and you actually have the de-identified information for any machine learning algorithm as much as possible. But I will take it to the next level. It's not just PII. Yes, once you secure the PII, it's also some common demographic patterns of information that have to be protected.
1: So Swati, that means having good data management practices is critical for AI.
2: In context of data management policies and processes, I think about the life cycle of AI, right? So the life cycle of AI, if I can broadly categorize, starts with the business problem you're going to solve. What are the data sources that will help in solving the business problem? The data itself, the data distribution, then your data analysis, then your machine learning algorithm, And after you have written the algorithm and deployed it to production, the ongoing monitoring. So that is the life cycle. And in this life cycle, compared to traditional software development, it's more important to have good data management processes for machine learning because machine learning by nature learns continuously. So if you did not lay out that uh, groundwork and have a framework, how to manage your data, Maybe the one time that you tested when you deployed, it was all well and good and uh, was not biased or the outcomes were good. But since it learns from continuously from data and the data always changes, it's changing literally every second or every millisecond in some cases. So you, you can, at some point, like today you tested and everything was good. Pretty soon, if you didn't have those good data management processes, you are going to create a system that can totally have negative outcomes at some point. If you did not monitor the way the data is flowing, what sort of data are you collecting and what sort of data are you feeding to the machine learning algorithms? And since data management policy and processes is a very, very broad and ambiguous term, it can sometimes also involve um, actually setting up your data lake your data warehouse, your business intelligence systems. And that is very important in context of machine learning because there is a statistic out there that says for every $1 you spend on the machine learning algorithm, you will spend $100 trying to get good quality data. What that means and what organizations can do to reduce that spend is basically make sure when you collect the data from your transactional systems, you collect it with high quality at source. So when you invest your resources, when you're uh, on the quality and data management at source, when you collect it from your transaction system into your data lake or warehouse, you will reduce your expenditure of later on, data scientists spending 80% of their effort, scrubbing the data, trying to understand that data. So hence it's really important. I would say in a nutshell, then one, to reduce your risk of bad outcomes that can go wrong as your data changes continuously. Number two, you want to reduce your investments and resources and increase your return on investment by producing high quality data at source. And number three, obviously you want to make sure the outcomes you're trying to achieve are good and follow the pattern as you have designed.
1: All right, let's talk about the next pillar, which is compute. And we want to focus on the processing capacity and the technology that is required to get the optimal level of processing data. Sam, which role do you think compute play on AI and machine learning?
0: For AI and machine learning, we have large volumes of data. In order to process that large volumes of data, we need a lot of uh, computer power just to give an example which is a popular example on netflix netflix asked their engineers uh, like a, to come up with an algorithm that can provide recommendation for the best movies to watch all of us know when we are on netflix uh, you bring up a movie it will give the recommendations but when the engineers came with a recommendation it was a very good recommendation but it, it was very costly or expensive because that algorithm would need a lot of uh, CPU and GPUs to process that. So they abandoned that project because you can come up with a solution, but can it be done with the resources that are available and in the time that is there? So can that be done? So that's where the role of compute comes into play. The result we are trying to get, how quickly we can get the result, and how much does it cost to get that result and with the advent of cloud computing certainly we can scale things in the fraction of a second so quickly the compute can be increased with uh, cloud computing in order to process those large volumes of data so as we as we continue to evolve process large volumes of data the question is what is the cost to get the results we need and how much resources are needed.
1: Swathi, why do you think efficient and faster machines are critical?
2: So that question goes hand in hand with the trends of emerging technologies. So the last five to 10 years, we have seen use cases of machine learning increase, uh, starting with consumer use cases like Netflix and Amazon recommendations, but more and more, enterprise organization and government adoption on their rise. And, and the last two years actually saw the convergence of emerging technologies. So uh, what I mean by that is you're more and more smart cities being implemented. The convergence there is the emerging technology of internet of things, which uses sensors to collect the data with artificial intelligence. Obviously, once sensors collect the data, to make decisions you use AI. So that's the convergence of IoT and AI. And uh, we have many other examples and then we have actual use cases of quantum computing as well. So as these use cases are increasing, obviously there is a demand for higher compute um, as well as the processing speeds. So for example, if you're taking your sensor data from autonomous vehicles, you need um, you need the speed to be in at the you know on real time because you have to the car has to make a decision on real time basis so in order to achieve that, we have to have faster machines. The other thing is the use cases are increasing so for example, there are a lot of use cases of using machine learning in um in c t scan images i'm I'm working on one that you uses like a, lung cancer CT scan images and so on so there are use cases for lung cancer image analysis or diagnosis there are images for other types of cancer diagnosis so uh, the image analysis uses something called the CNN and uh, RNN modules obviously deep learning techniques that need that compute power in order to analyze the images so as the use cases for machine learning and complex uh, applications of convergence of various emerging technologies is increasing the need for faster machines is also increasing because they go hand in hand Um, and everybody needs everything on their fingertips and for anything to happen so quickly you need faster machines and that's only possible um, as you know semiconductors um, produced by nvidia and other companies are innovating constantly to actually fulfill this demand.
1: There are specific challenges regarding hardware, when we are working with AI systems. But Swati and Sam, how much do we need to upgrade our hardware technology to advance in AI?
2: So I think with everything, like with anything else, I would say the answer is it depends. It depends on your use case. And also uh, if you're a data center or you're on cloud, because the first adopters of providing large compute is cloud service providers, whether it's AWS, Google Cloud, or Amazon Cloud. Um, The second thing is obviously, if you are starting small, you're a large organization, you're thinking of uh, dabbling in AI and machine learning, so you don't have, you have a small data center, and you're a smaller organization, Uh, Obviously, then you might want to think about going to cloud because it gives that instant um, availability at the touch of your finger. Um, But if you're a GE or a large organization and have huge data centers um, for uh, your experiments with IOT and other smart devices or anything else or image analysis, yes, then you want to upgrade your to the latest um, developments in the semiconductor space. And I do know NVIDIA, one of my friends works there, and they have a close relationship with companies like GE and Siemens because they are producing all sensor-based applications that will help them test their latest uh, semiconductors and chips. Um, Whereas for larger and smaller organizations, I think cloud is
0: the way to go at least for now. as what mentioned, uh, the open source softwares are as being used for AI and also the other software by the big organizations such as IBM, Microsoft, Google that have come up with the AI software. But the challenge comes is, as we know, whether in government or commercial sector, the applications are in multiple platforms, whether like there are still many applications that are on mainframe legacy systems which generate data and other uh, hardware platforms when we are using a platform software how do we integrate between the systems that is a challenge because one for example mainframes may not be able to talk to uh, some ai software and if there are two government agencies they want to integrate uh, what are the challenges today and Not all platforms can integrate well, so these are the challenges developers face when they need to segregate data from multiple applications or integrate with legacy systems. These are the challenges, and being able to port from one application to another. If an organization is using a Microsoft cloud platform, does it work well with all the open sources? Does it work with with Google software? Those challenges still exist.
1: So talking about people, right? Because uh, we have people here building up algorithms, coding the softwares and everything. Mm -hmm. In terms of knowledge, what do we need to do with our technical people to grow their experience and knowledge, becoming better developing in systems?
0: Well, yes, uh, that's a good question, Obed. The the talent, AI artificial intelligence has come up and many uh, institutions, like education institutions, have started having courses related to ai data analytics advanced analytics machine learning but uh, still uh, there is a talent gap as organizations have continues has increased the adoption uh, there is a need of talent and resources to apply these uh, technologies and at, at Synectics, as you said our innovation lab works in a, like a startup mode which gives the opportunity for employees to try prototype or any new uh, solutions, they can try them in a startup mode. That gives the ability for them using the resources available like cloud to quickly uh, prototype solutions and present those solutions to the customers. So our Innovation Lab is a great opportunity for our employees to learn and augment their skills and also find and solve customer problems.
2: This is interesting you asked me because I'm currently working with the US federal government for ACT-IAC working group. We are coming up with a model for certification for AI skills. This Tuesday, MIT produced a report that looked at the future of jobs. And obviously, one of the salient features is what is how to upskill and reskill people. So you're talking about engineers who are already writing algorithms, but I would talk broadly about three major sectors of people. I mean, there are more than that, but I'm talking in a traditional maybe uh, as a government contractor situation or even in the government. So you might be somebody who's totally not in IT. You might be somebody in IT, but not doing data science or data related projects doing traditional software development. Then the third one is you might be a data scientist, you are in the world of algorithms. So the first one is very far, right? So first one is totally not in technology, but they still have an important role to play in data science. Unlike traditional software, data science actually needs every field to come together. So they are one of the few technology jobs that are recruiting neuroscientists and psychologists, because some of the questions I'm sure you will cover later about the ethics, like if an autonomous vehicle has to make certain decisions, you need the neuroscientist and the behavioral psychologists' input. But suppose you're not even a behavioral psychologist and you want to get into AI or data science, then there is a path to it. And nowadays, there are a lot of boot camps and Udemy, Udacity courses, and a lot of boot camps. I think doing the boot camps, doing free courses, and then doing a project is their path to get into it. The second one is if a traditional software developer, I want to get into data science, I think that the switch there is easier than the former. They already know about technology. Now they have to learn more about the technologies related to data science, which is, like I mentioned, like setting up the infrastructure, which is Hadoop or the cloud layers, or they can look into like data analysis because for every data scientist project or an algorithm to be written, you spend 80% of your time actually analyzing the data. Like for credit card fraud detection, we actually have to sit with the credit card person who makes those rules, that credit card rules to find out how to translate that into the data. And I have worked on lung cancer research projects where actually a lung cancer surgeon tells us what the data means. So you can be the data analyst to make sense of mountains of data and map it to a readable format that an algorithm can be written. And finally, the data scientist. I think data scientist as a role is a broad spectrum. In the data science world, there are people who do end-to-end, which is take the data, analyze the data, write the algorithms, and then present it in a visually stunning dashboard. But there are some who focus on only writing algorithms and some who focus on creating the dashboard and i think when if you're talking about technology that's the only field where you have to keep up with change i started my career as a software engineer in 2000 when i was writing pl sql and a lot of sql and the only way i could keep up with the technologies is doing self learning so as a technologist you have to keep learning and and nowadays it's become even more easy because even Stanford professors, I can actually access their uh, online classes at zero cost. So my machine learning that I did at at Udacity.com was actually by Andrew Yang, the professor at Stanford, which is at zero cost. So you have that. The only thing is you need to invest time and be proactive in keeping up with these technologies, as well as research papers. Even this past week, uh, Google produced a research paper, how to deal with fairness. So you have to keep up reading and reading that's the only way that you can keep up because the technologies is moving at the speed of light so organizationally and government-wide you need a plan and a strategy to reskill and upskill people so that we meet the future of jobs of tomorrow.
1: Jeff and Bob I would like to ask you How does federal contractors can compete in terms of quality development when offering this kind of system as a solution for government?
4: Federal contractors, uh, as I've already mentioned, have to stay on top of their game. Uh, We have to know what uh, what tools and what developments are out there, not just what's been done, but what's being done. And uh, with the COVID lockdown, it's become a little bit more difficult to uh, get around to uh, industry meetings where we can really share with others, but we're still trying to do that. And beyond that, then we have to uh, really start looking at how we as a company would invest in innovation. Uh, we have to actually go out there and get some of these tools. Some of them are pretty inexpensive for, for trial and development. And then uh, get them in a lab. We have our Scilab where we at Synectics are uh, using that as a test environment for tools, uh, using canned data sets, not proprietary data sets of any kind. So we can test out the new technologies so that when the government needs something, we know not only which tool will meet their requirement the best, but we also have already tested it. We have some proven methodologies. And uh, and so with that in mind, we can quickly go to developing a prototype, for instance, for the government to ensure that the tool that we would be providing will meet their requirements. And that's all part of quality. You don't want to have AI for AI's sake. You want to have AI that meets the requirements efficiently. I kind of
3: think about it in, in, in several components that, that a company must address, uh, particularly a government contractor. Uh, first of all, you, you have to understand what your agency's concerns, problems, issues are that they're trying to address, and decide is this a problem that can be addressed through the application of artificial intelligence, machine learning, or or other other types of uh, applications? Uh, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is is I think you really have to stay on top of what is the emergent technology, you know, where is this going, and what what are the gaps? You know, where are we now that can be applied to help an agency address its needs and what hasn't been developed yet. And that, and that gets, I think, to the, uh, the innovation itself, uh, you know, at ethics we have our innovation lab, as you've mentioned, uh, that, that uh, Sam, uh, manages, um, that's the, the, uh, organization within our company that we use to study these very issues. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it, it really requires a, a crystal ball, to some extent, to look into the future, uh, not just understand the present, but understand the future, understand the gaps that exist, and then try to develop uh, innovative solutions to to bridge those gaps in a way that helps your customer, uh, a government agency, uh, solve a problem.
1: Now, let's move on into the fourth pillar, which is the core of Smart System and its algorithm. Sam, how can we explain this concept of algorithm, which is basically a set of instructions, right?
0: An algorithm in a layman terms, a definition would be a finite set of instructions carried out in a specific order to perform a task. But when it comes to AI and machine learning, algorithm is like an engine It means it turns uh, a data centric model. What kind of algorithm works best depends on the type of problem you are solving, the computer resources that are available, and the nature of data. So if you want to categorize algorithms, there are two ways uh, that I think we can categorize. One is grouping the algorithms based on their learning style or grouping the algorithms based on their similarity in form or function. If you want to group algorithms based on the learning style, it would be one common would be called supervised learning where you're training the algorithm with some training data set uh, where the data points have labels. Like one common example would be like uh, for prediction uh, where you use a regression algorithm to predict For example, we see on Zoom on Zillow predicting the prices where we give the data points about the number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, the square feet, where it can predict the price. And those initial data points will help in prediction. The other kind would be like a classification. The common example we all know is in the email where it classifies whether the email is a spam or not a spam. So those are some of the examples of supervised learning. Again, when it is not able to identify correctly, you train the model with the info that it can classify by. The importance for these algorithms to function well, the quality of data is important, how the training data is. If the data is not good, the outcome from the algorithm will not be good. So having good data that you feed in and you're able to train the model to perform, to give good results. The second kind would be unsupervised learning. Something that we do every day, when you look at something, you learn from it and continue to be able to function. And you do not have uh, data points with the labels. You're learning through the process. And that is uh, unsupervised learning. For example, uh, a customer applied for a loan and you need to predict whether the customer is able to make payment or not. So you need to look at all the data points and classify what category the customer would be. And sometimes you may get a lot of data points and you need to use the algorithm to reduce or dimension it to identify. If there are 30 data points, I don't need all those 30 data points to predict what the uh, customer behavior would be. So that's when you identify what are the critical elements that you use to identify the customer. So that would be the unsupervised. The other kind would be reinforced learning, which is mainly used in games where you learn from trial and error through the process. So algorithms have been in place, they're evolving, and we all All of us use day-to-day, like for Google Maps, when we want to go for a a point A to point B, and we get multiple options to pick the best option that we do. And they also, as we feed in the info, they learn through the process. And algorithms by themselves cannot be the best result or accurate. It is the information that we provide, data we provide, and train it so that the outcome can
1: be better. Swati, how algorithms make systems smart?
2: Just just to... Simplified algorithms definition with an analogy. Take electricity. We all use electricity every day, every minute of the day and for various purposes, but really if we ask how is electricity produced, there's a whole science behind it. Wind energy, that's a different way of producing the electricity. If it's water, Falling on turbines, it's different ways. So the inner workings of how electricity is produced is something that only people who are working in generators or in the huge hydrothermal plants will know. So the analogy here is an algorithm is something that is the inner working of a computer system. So traditionally for a software computer, it used to be the if-then conditional instructions to make a software algorithm work. In the context of AI and machine learning algorithms are slightly different instead of the traditional conditions that you write the if-then statement the algorithm is learning from vast quantities of data typically machine learning and there is a subfield of AI that is robotics I'm not going there today in the context of machine learning uh, again I want to give another example Very often, we hear a lot of statistics in the news, right? We hear the medium income of an average American household is XYZ dollars. You hear statistics in sports, you know, the ball, how many pitches they made, what is the performance of a sports person? So that is traditional statistics. What they've taken is statistics and applied to large quantities of data to glean insights and patterns from data. So when you make the program, you write a computer program to do that, that's called the algorithm in the context of an artificial intelligence. Now how it makes systems smart or intelligent is by applying this algorithm to make certain decision points. So, for example, traditionally, you want to save energy in a large commercial building. And you might have some sensors when people enter the building, the lights are on or off. But you want to do more than that. You want to make sure all the things that are related to the building are smartly controlled so that you're not only saving energy costs of the building, but it's also to build a sustainable environment. So that's an example where you make it very smart. So basically you embed sensors throughout the building that can read humidity, temperature, and other factors in the building. And then it can pass that data to an algorithm which can make decisions based on what you want to achieve. So in this case, you might want to say if the threshold or the capacity of this building is below 10%, then make sure you run the heat at a certain percentage or certain level. So thereby you are able to make the machine make a decision, which is sort of mimicking human intelligence. Uh, Instead of a person being there and counting the number of floors in the building, how many people are in the building, and then going and adjusting a thermostat, here you simply use sensors and you fed the data and you made the machine make the decision. Okay, based on your data, sensor is reading that the occupancy is low, Now, it automatically adjusts the heating to a certain optimal level, thereby saving the energy costs of the building. And you have seen similarly in consumer household using a nest. Uh, I love my nest. It knows that I love my temperature to be at 75, where everybody's roasting, but I'm happy. But it learns from my past what I like the temperature to be. So that is slightly introducing the concept of algorithms making automated decisions, and hence they are building that intelligence or making that what we call as smart machines or smart buildings and so on and so forth.
1: How much do we need to upgrade in AI, the software part to advance that that technology to become, you know, better with the time and what we need to do to update this?
2: So again, the inner workings of what it takes to run these algorithms, right? So traditionally, I would talk about when you think of enterprise-scale AI adoption, we want to think of three things as infrastructure upgrades. One is your data infrastructure, your big data infrastructure, which is basically you have your sales transactions, your vendor information, your HR systems, your multitude of systems that you have are all producing transactional data every second of the day. So, you want your enterprise data warehouse to have the latest, whether it's a Hadoop or any other infrastructure, which is called the big data infrastructure. So, that is a foundational layer because you want to collate all this data and house it in a in a robust infrastructure, so that if you want to do any analysis, you have that data present, instead of going to your sales system or going to your procurement or financial system. So that's a foundational layer of infrastructure you want to upgrade to be on the latest technology, whether you want to think about Hadoop or uh, there are a lot of other providers out there. So I would call that as cloud operations. So cloud operations of your data warehouse and data lakes. The second thing I want to talk about is the security. So once you have consolidated the data, you want to think about your security layers, right? Because here we are even talking about government data and, and my organization like Integrity and we deal with actual health data, which has to be even more secure following HIPAA. So I want to call that as the security operational layer, and that has a lot of tools depending on whether you're securing it or at rest or in flight at the network level. So there are many security levels you want to think about. And last but not the least is the algorithms itself. So in order to run algorithms, we need powerful machinery, but with everything, it depends. If you're running an algorithm for fraud detection, yes, you need to upgrade or use an AWS server to have some good processing power. But if you're doing image analysis of CT scans for cancer detection, you need even more power because image analysis consumes even more power. So depending on what all use cases that you're dealing with you want to upgrade your actual processing power and these days it's more easy with AWS but again there is a cost involved the image analysis projects I've been involved in have been even for like 10 images that we analyze it consumes so much power so think about your costs associated with upgrading obviously with the cloud you can easily purchase the processing power but if your use case is more complex like and image analysis, you need to upgrade to the latest and uh, greatest cloud processing power as well as the tools like TensorFlow that Google provides or AWS SageMaker. So those are some of the things. The good news is there are a lot of open source tools that you can avail at low cost, but depending on the amount of data you're crunching, your cost will depend on the processing power that you are going to pay for the cloud, or even procuring data, because if you are a third-party vendor, you might not actually own the data or have enough data. So those are some of the things to keep in the back of the mind. So in summary, your cloud infrastructure, which is foundational for your data warehouse, second is your security operational layer, and the third is actual compute power to run the algorithms.
1: Let's move into the fifth pillar of our conversation today, which is ethics. And Every time that we talk about using a new technology that will be deployed for the public and impacting the public, Ethical concerns arise and start being the pivot point of a conversation and it's understandable because we want to make sure using these technologies are going to be a good thing for people. People will be protected from misusing these technologies and the impact is going to be a good one. Of talking about using AI, if people are going to be replaced by machines, using AI to take a decision on when and how to use lethal force, talking about the Department of Defense, having a public facility shooting down in case of an emergency, thinking about COVID cases in airports, a lot of scenarios where this new technology can be used just rise up a lot of concerns at the same time on the ethical part. But Jeff, what other considerations we should talk about when talking about ethics on AI? Well,
3: you know, one thing that comes to mind when I talk about uh, ethics uh, in the context of AI is, you know, one of the defining characteristics of a profession such as, as law or medicine is that they have their own uh, code of ethics and oftentimes an independent board that, that enforces that ethics. And I think we're, we're just starting to see the beginning of the, you know, recognition of developing um, industry standards governing, you know, the use of the AI and, and, and ethical issues surrounding it. Um, one comment I would make is about, you know, integrating the subject matter experts. Like we were talking about psychologists and other types of professionals. Um, take, for instance, um, AI tools that are used to help in the uh, human resources area. Uh, there are many uh, legal and ethical considerations that have to be considered when, when deploying those systems. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, the AI will can be trained to, to, to manage and interpret the data, but it must be done, for instance, in an employment context consistent with um, uh, numerous existing laws and regulations. So I think that you know, there's both a legal aspect to how the AI is deployed, as well as an ethical aspect in how it will be deployed. And while we have the uh, the the laws are established, we're we're looking at a situation where we have new technologies being used in established fields, but the law that governs much much of those areas uh, exists. Uh, I think on the ethical side, uh, we're still at the uh, early stages. Of coming up with a, uh, a comprehensive approach to ethics
1: and AI. Swati, do you think AI systems should reflect the same values of our society?
2: Yeah, this is this is quite a complex question because um, it's both the chicken and the egg. Is uh, are all the AI systems uh, automating human intelligence or? or something else is the question, but I will borrow from IEEE's ethical ethical design for autonomous systems and say that it should follow the principles of, uh, will the outcomes of a system that we're building using AI uh, be beneficial to the society at large? and And to answer that question, um One is outside the regulation and policy um, what is the informal culture uh, and secondly it's policy and regulation, which is usually policy and regulation is a is a culmination of people's ethics because society votes there. Uh, Their government officials, who in turn vote on the policy uh, or they pass the bill, so so it all is like a circular dependency. Um, but ultimately, I think where we are in talking about um, ethics, regulation, and so on is what what was society in 1974 when they first were discussing about IVF, how IVF can be used. Uh, to help a childless couple actually conceive. And today we also saw this year the Nobel Prize was given to CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool, uh, which because of ethics, um, you cannot have some use cases. Clearly, CRISPR has the ability to edit human genes to produce the type of babies you want to produce and introduce into the society. But but is it humanely allowed? Is it ethically allowed? Not really. There's, there's so many things that are possible in the human, human genetics and human medicine that's not ethically allowed. So I think AI is at a nascent stage, but I foresee it will follow something similar. That there is capability, but we won't be going to where it is going to have this huge impact on society at large we see that conversations uh, five years back were different and now ethics and AI has become a mainstream conversation. It's become so uh, debatable at conferences and people have different frameworks. Um, But I think end of the day, it will follow our society's both formal and informal rules. And, And I think more formal than informal because If I go to a doctor and they diagnose me with something, I take it at face value. I don't usually question their diagnosis because they are following the whole protocol of the Hippocrates Oath. So we will have, we should have something similar where we trust AI to certain degree uh, with the recommendations considering that it is designed with respect to our ethics and principles. But having said that, ultimately, I think there will be use cases where it will also depends on the geographical location. Just like there are some states that ban capital punishment and some states allow death sentences, I think it will also follow the, some countries might allow certain use cases and some countries in the world might not. So I think the mix of culture, people's beliefs, and uh, society as a whole uh, will be a reflection in how AI is designed, implemented, uh, controlled ethically. And we have seen, even in the last six months, due to Black Lives Matter, IBM and Microsoft have dropped their facial recognition technologies. So um, companies are becoming more uh, ethically responsible, especially in the context of AI systems, so I think I think it is going to come full circle a couple of years down the lane where we have stricter regulation and policy around it.
1: Well, we get to the end of our conversation today. Thank you all for participating into our panel. And thank you for sharing your points and your thoughts. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And we will meet again on another episode of Synectics Talk later. Goodbye.